0: Section 37 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 17. The Fall of Marlborough. Part 2. The conduct of the English government caused much alarm and indignation among the Allies, who saw that England meant to make peace without caring much what became of their interests. As a last hope, Prince Eugene determined to visit England himself to see whether he might perhaps be able to persuade the government to continue the war. He landed at Gravesend on the 5th of January 1712 to find his friend the Duke of Marlborough in disgrace. And though he himself was hospitably received by the court, he soon saw that his mission was hopeless. He was lodged at Leicester House and visited by all the great men. Grand entertainments were given in his honor. As he passed through the streets, he was always surrounded by an enthusiastic mob. When he visited the court, it was crowded with people eager to see him. Swift had a good look at him once, and described him as plaguy-yellow and literally ugly besides. The queen gave him a magnificent diamond sword worth forty-five hundred pounds, but she managed to avoid talking with him about public affairs, and he could get nothing but compliments out of the ministers. He learnt with indignation the charges brought against the Duke of Marlborough and the House of Commons, and was surprised to see the contempt with which his great friend was treated by people who had forgotten all their former enthusiasm. On the Queen's birthday, the people crowded round a chair in the park, which they thought contained the Prince, but when they found that it was the Duke of Marlborough, their shouts of applause were changed to cries of, Stop! Thief! Prince Eugène did not neglect the Duke because he had lost all his power. He treated him with the cordiality of a true friend, visited him frequently, and lost no opportunity of testifying to his greatness. It was the fashion to pretend that it was a mistake to credit Marlborough even with courage or any of the qualities of a great general— and Bishop Burnet pointed out to Prince Eugène a passage in one of the pamphlets of the day stating that the Duke of Marlborough was perhaps once fortunate. Prince Eugène emphatically replied, It is the greatest compliment which can be given, for he was always successful, and this must imply that if in one single instance he was fortunate, all his other successes were owing to his conduct. Another time he was dining with the Lord Treasurer, who remarked that it was the happiest day in his life, because he saw in his house the greatest captain of the age. "'If it be so, I owe it to your lordship,' answered the prince, alluding to the disgrace of Marlborough. On the 17th of March, after a stay of ten weeks, Prince Eugène left England, convinced that nothing more was to be hoped for from her— Seeing that he had not been able to get the ministers even to discuss seriously the proposals he had brought from the Emperor, the Tories had not failed to circulate ridiculous stories about the object of Eugene's visit, crediting him and Marlborough with a plot to seize the person of the Queen and fire the city. Never had party spirit run so high in England. Even the ladies shared actively in the party quarrels. The Whig ladies would not go to court, and the opinions of a lady might always be told by the side of her face on which she wore her patches. The peace conferences had opened at Utrecht on the 29th of January. The representatives of the Allies were amazed at the terms proposed by Louis XIV, who had grown bold again now that he saw what firm friends he had in the English minister's, but matters became more complicated by a terrible misfortune that befell Louis Fourteenth, The Dauphin, formerly known as the Duke of Burgundy, Louis's grandson, his young and charming wife, and their eldest boy all died within a few days of one another of a malignant form of measles. This left only a feeble boy of two as sole heir to the aged king. After this sickly child, the next heir to the throne was philip of spain even the english ministers could not consent to any peace which did not make it impossible for philip to reign over both france and spain philip was called upon to choose between france and spain and though past events had showed how little the french were to be bound by treaties or formal renunciations the english government was willing to leave spain to philip provided he would renounce all claim to France. Whilst Philip's answer was awaited, the conferences were suspended. The English government had protested that they would continue the war with vigor if peace were not concluded, and the Duke of Ormond was sent to take Marlborough's command in the Netherlands and join Prince Eugène. They were at the head of a formidable army. The French were weak, half-starved, and badly supplied. Eugène wished to carry out Marlborough's project and march into the heart of France. Ormond was eager for fame. The French were so alarmed that they advised Louis XIV to retire from Paris to Blois. But Louis XIV was not frightened. Messengers were once more busy between Versailles and London, and the English were busy devising new terms of peace. On May 10th, an express was sent off to Ormond, bidding him not to engage in any siege or hazard a battle. When Eugene called upon Ormond to join him in attacking the French camp, Ormond refused, to the immense indignation of the allies. His conduct also caused much anger in England, and Lord Halifax called attention to it in the House of Lords, and ended by moving a resolution that the Queen would be pleased to recall the orders sent to her general. Marlborough seconded the motion, pointing out what a good effect it would have upon the peace conferences if the Allies gained some important advantage. A fierce debate followed, in which the opponents of Marlborough sought every possible opportunity of directly and indirectly blaming his past conduct. At last, matters reached a crisis when Earl Powlett said, No one can doubt the Duke of Ormond's bravery but he does not resemble a certain general who led troops to the slaughter to cause a certain number of officers to be knocked on the head in a battle or against stone walls in order to fill his pocket by disposing of their commissions. At the time this insult was passed by in silence, the debate went on, and Lord Halifax's motion was lost, but twenty-seven peers and Marlborough amongst them signed a severe protest against this decision of the House. When the debate was over, Marlborough sent Lord Mohun to Earl Powlett, asking him to take the heir in the country, the customary way of challenging a man for a duel. Powlett, greatly alarmed, could not conceal his agitation from his wife on his return home. When she discovered the cause, she at once informed the Earl of Dartmouth, the Secretary of State. He had Powlett arrested, and orders were sent from the Queen to Marlborough to go no further in the matter, and the duel was avoided. But this gave the pamphleteers a new cause for attacking Marlborough, and the examiner blamed him severely for setting the example of party duels. Ormond's position became worse and worse, Stung by the taunts of Eugène, he had at last consented to join in the siege of Quenois. When that town fell, Eugène wished to proceed to the siege of Landresy. Ormond professed to be offended that he had not been told of Eugène's intentions before, and seizing this opportunity at last for separating his army from Eugène's. He said that Eugène was deserting him, and when Eugène broke up his camp on July 16th, He ordered the English troops and the mercenaries in English pay to remain with him. The mercenaries indignantly refused, and only one thousand Holsteiners obeyed his commands. That same day Ormond proclaimed a suspension of arms with the French. Bitter was the shame in the English camp. The orders were received with hisses and murmurs. An eyewitness writes, that the British camp resounded with curses against the Duke of Ormond as a stupid tool and general of straw. The colonels, captains, and other brave officers were so overwhelmed with vexation that they sat apart in their tents looking on the ground for very shame, with downcast eyes, and for several days shrank from the sight even of their fellow soldiers. Whenever they recollected the Duke of Marlborough and the late glorious times, their eyes filled with tears, the Dutch governors of Bouchin, Douay, and Tournay refused to receive the English army and Ormond was obliged to seize Ghent and Bruges and establish his troops there. His defection, of course, placed the French at an advantage before the end of the campaign. Villars was able to retake Douay, Quenois, and Bouchin. Never has so deep a stain been cast upon English honour. The ministers who had won their way to power like conspirators made peace like conspirators and did not care if they sacrificed the honor of their country in order to make their own position secure. End of Section 37